it's a fantastic opportunity for the BJSM podcast to be with Professor Stephen Blair and he's been visiting Vancouver and we've taken some time out to talk about the obesity epidemic, physical fitness and health and anything else that comes to mind for him today. Um, Stephen, great to have you in Vancouver and thanks for doing this podcast for BJSM. Karim, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed my visit and uh, very happy to talk about some of these things that uh, are my passion. Fantastic. So let's just jump in and uh, hit obesity. Okay, there's a big perception that there's an obesity epidemic. You've written about it um, in the BMJ in a recent head-to-head. Why don't you start with introducing that topic and your thoughts on obesity? Well, there's no question that we are experiencing an obesity epidemic around the world. And we have, for the last 25 or 30 years, seen the rates of overweight and obesity in many, indeed, if not most, uh, maybe all countries around the world uh, uh, increasing. So there's no question that people are getting heavier, people are getting fatter. And I think this is of public health uh, concern. We do have to pay some attention to these increasing obesity rates. And so, Is that because people are eating uh, too much? I think we do not know. We do not have compelling data on the causes of the obesity epidemic. In the United States, for example, we've spent millions, indeed tens of millions of dollars, uh, administering 24-hour dietary recalls to participants in our National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Tens of thousands of people over 30 years spent a lot of money measuring dietary intake. And when you look at the data from that, you cannot make a compelling case that Americans are eating more than they did 30 years ago. That is more calories per day. So if Americans are not eating more calories per day, then how can Americans be gaining weight, as much weight as as we have observed? Uh, Unless we repeal the laws of physics, the only possible explanation is they are burning fewer calories over time than they did years ago. Now, unfortunately, in the United States, we have never collected data on total energy expenditure. So what I've said is a hypothesis, but we have no data to know if total daily energy expenditure is changing. But it seems to me if one just stops to think about it for a moment, and think of how the world, United States and many other places, most other places, how it's changed over the last three or four decades. We have been very busy engineering energy expenditure out of life. This is true at home. Uh, Years ago, we didn't have microwave ovens and self-propelled vacuum cleaners and on and on, all the labor-saving devices that are now ubiquitous uh, across our society. Uh, Certainly, uh, energy expenditure at work has been declining uh, over the last uh, decades. Certainly in the United States, we have fewer people engaged in uh, goods-producing jobs like mining and manufacturing, fewer people engaged in farming, and more people engaged in sedentary jobs, and indeed even light jobs. Uh, I don't know the actual numbers, but certainly there are far more people who today at work spend the entire day sitting than there was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 25 years ago. So we've engineered 
energy expenditure down, down, down. And we've done this, of course, also just in leisure time outside of work around the house and yard and uh, uh, on the occupation, more and more attractions for leisure time uh, involving sitting at a screen, playing a game, watching a movie, that sort of thing. So it seems very likely to me that the total daily energy expenditure of people in most uh, uh, parts of the world has been going down. Unfortunately, we don't have data. And I think this is a tremendous deficit in our uh, understanding of the cause of the obesity epidemic. And until we get better data and find out whether my hypothesis might be correct or whether it really is uh, uh, increasing caloric intake, until we get the answer to that fundamental question, how can we possibly develop strategies that might work? I mean, if we don't know which side of the equation to really attack. So I'm getting increasingly frustrated that policymakers and clinicians and uh, many people focus on the intake side as though we know that's the cause. I don't think we do. It does seem to make sense that um, people being less active. I mean, before we move on to the physical activity possibility that people are being more, you know, more inactive and what that means for health, Food portions do seem bigger though as well. So a devil's advocate would say, Steve, you just have to have a look around and the portions are bigger, people are eating more often. Um, what do you say to that? I think there is pretty good evidence that in the United States at least, uh, portion sizes in restaurants are bigger than they used to be. Uh, and I don't think one really needs research to, <laughs> to do that. Just uh, think back to 20 years ago and go to a restaurant today. It's also clear that more and more people are eating more meals away from home. And finally, more of those meals are in fast food restaurants. So I think those trends, I mean, I'm convinced by the data that those trends are in fact true. However, that does not necessarily mean average increases in caloric intake. See, it may be that the portion size increase, maybe you eat a little bit less than the next day. Because I come back to what I consider the best data we have in the United States, which again, we've spent tens of millions of dollars collecting, 24-hour dietary recalls on tens of thousands of people over the last 30 years, and there's no compelling evidence for an increase in average daily caloric intake. So uh, some things have changed about our uh, food uh, uh, pattern uh, in restaurants. Uh, uh, another thing that I think, again in the absence of, of uh, solid data, uh, that I think may well have changed are just habits. That uh, certainly my grandmother and my mother never threw out any food. It just didn't matter. There was a way to salvage it and uh, maybe peel off the, the mold and fix it in a way that the family, and that's, that's just the way it was in those days. That's not the case in my uh, children's generation. Uh, I know young people who uh, look at the expiration date on the box of cereal, say, oh, we're getting close to the exp expiration date, and they throw it away. Yeah. And uh, so I, I'm guessing there's a lot more of that, certainly in the United States, than we had in, in years past. And then another thing, some people like to look at the food disappearance data <clears throat> uh, in, in the U.S. or in, in other countries, and they say, well, the, the, there's more calories disappearing from the food supply than was the case 20 or 30 years ago. But uh, let's just take one example. As I've already said, there are many more fast 
uh, food meals eaten by people in the United States. So let's just take the fast food restaurants that makes chips and uh, 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 fries a lot of material. Uh, half of the oil that goes in the, into those restaurants comes out as industrial waste. And maybe it gets made into diesel oil or something else. But the fact that it disappeared from the food supply did not mean that people ate it. Right. So there, there are problems with the food disappearance data as well. Again, more wastage uh, and, and people just uh, not uh, being as careful. Uh, yeah. Those of us of my generation can remember, clean your plate. They're starving children <laughs> who would like to have this food. And I don't think that is as prominent today as it used to be. So then let's move on to saying if people are less physically active, it's not hard to believe. Is well, let, let, let me just interrupt yep. and say in the United States, I would not say people are less physically active in that when we think of physical activity or when we look for data on physical activity in the United States, we go to our big national surveys like the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and physical activity is measured in those surveys, but it's basically leisure time recreational activity. We ask about walking, jogging, swimming, cycling, sports, and the like, and the data from those surveys uh, has been essentially flat over the last 30 years. Very little change. So that's why I'm careful to use the term total daily energy expenditure. You see the, the voluntary leisure time physical activity can stay the same, but you can have a big change in total energy expenditure by sitting more uh, around the house, sitting more at work and the like. So uh, physical activity as people customarily think of it uh, probably hasn't changed all that much. It's these other things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good distinction um, to think about total daily energy expenditure. If that's um, happened and there's less total daily energy expenditure, is that bad for health? Oh, I think so, yes. So we are uh, an emerging area of research is to look at physical inactivity, or Mark Hamilton calls it the physical inactivity syndrome, or sedentary behavior, as some people have termed it. And basically what's this, what this means is people are spending more time sitting. And we are finding that uh, the amount of time spent sitting and the amount of time spent in inter uninterrupted sitting uh, is probably hazardous. Uh, to uh, various metabolic uh, parameters, and we even now have some uh, data. Uh, we've done some research on this ourselves, uh, showing our sitting is associated with higher mortality rates. And in some of these studies, this holds up even when you adjust for the customary physical activity. So an exciting area of research in recent years is to kind of separate the, what we think of normally as physical activity, the sports, the walking, jogging, and the like, and then the, down at the very low end of the spectrum, the sitting, the completely sedentary behavior. And it may well be that uh, you don't quite overcome the harmful effects of sitting so much just by getting your 30-minute walk each day. I mean, you're certainly going to be better off if you take that 30-minute walk each day, but you may get additional health benefits if you also stand up and move around a little more, have more breaks in, in your sitting time. And I understand you do that. Tell us what you do to break up your sedentary behavior as a busy professor of epidemiology. 
Well, I try to, if I want to talk to some of my colleagues in, uh, in, in the suite where my office is or even in our building, and I won't say that I never send them an email, but they say, well, should I send this email or should I just walk over to Russ's office and talk to him? So I do try to do that. And, um, uh, you know, we all um, have to occasionally use the facilities, uh, go to the toilet, and I try at least once a day to use the toilet in the public health building, which is two blocks away from where my office wow. is. So it gets me out, take a little walk, and uh, you know, it takes a little time. But my belief, and now we're going well beyond science and just to my belief, I think I'm more productive if I get up and not go out for a workout, but just uh, a five-minute walk, even around the building, which I have uh, been known to do. You feel better, you get refreshed, I think you come back and you're more productive. Now, again, keep in mind that's Steve's wild speculation. I don't think we have data on that. But I feel better. Yeah, we'll put that in the SWS category, (laughs) Steve's wild speculation. But uh, I think it resonates with many people. And obviously there's powerful evidence that exercise is associated with improved cognitive function. And uh, Art Kramer and others have written a lot about that. I'm going to put in a little plug for the Genevieve Healy podcast on the BJSM site. Uh, so Genevieve has talked about that with um, her work with David Dunstan and Neville Owen. Oh, that's uh, that's great. Uh, uh, Genevieve, David, Neville Owen, their colleagues in Australia have been among the world leaders in doing this work. And uh, I'll just throw in a plug for Genevieve. I was an external reviewer for her PhD dissertation a year ago, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, in talking with her in recent months, she's uh, continuing this line of investigation. So I eagerly await Genevieve's new work. Great. So, uh, yeah, that is an important distinction, though, just for listeners who haven't got the benefit of going to all these conferences, that uh, this sedentary behaviour is an you know, independent um, risk factor, um, independent of physical activity, as you just articulated. So let's move to the obesity and the activity side of things, because there's a lot of arguments that uh, public health people will try and get rid of obesity as a problem. They look at the instance of diabetes and they talk all about that. So um, you have been probably not a sole voice, but uh, a prominent voice saying that physical inactivity is a big public health problem and uh, the emphasis on obesity is incorrect um, and out of proportion, really. So why don't you take it from there and just share your thoughts, Steve? Well, I have to confess that I get uh, quite irritated when I see a paper in a a, a peer-reviewed journal on obesity and some health outcome, again, diabetes or whatever, and I search the article and I can't even find any reference at all to physical activity, exercise, fitness. In my mind, that is junk science. You cannot study obesity and health outcomes without taking this, taking this huge potential confounder of activity or fitness into account. I would never even, and I say, would say the same thing about activity fitness and health outcomes. I have never in my entire career submitted a paper on activity fitness and health without taking body mass index, waist circumference, percent body fat into account because obesity and activity and fitness are, are related. So this is the classical case for confounding. You have to take them into account. And it is very disturbing to me that uh, every week in leading scientific journals, I see papers on obesity and health outcome in which physical activity is not mentioned. We've got to get beyond that. 
And uh, I'm serious when I say it's junk science if they don't uh, pay any attention to uh, physical activity or fitness. Now, and then another problem is if they say we adjusted for physical activity. I mean, I have seen articles in uh, the most high-impact journals uh, in medicine and public health, the ones at the very top of the list, in which uh, uh, in the, a table might show uh, the, let's say, death rates by different BMI categories, uh, and in a footnote of the table, it says adjusted for physical activity. And so I think, well, that's well and good. They, they're adjusting for activity. I wonder how they measured it. And I go back to the methods section, and there's not a single word, not a word, about how activity is measured. And I think, could I claim to have adjusted for diet and not say a single word about how I measured diet? Well, I think we know the answer to that. So um, I know I have made this statement before and uh, uh, actually did it in a meeting one time uh, when the author of the article that I was referring to was in the audience and that person hasn't spoken to me since. But I did notice that in the next paper from that group, they did say how they measured physical activity. They put in six words on how they measured activity. So could I get away with six words on how I measured diet? And I'm just looking for some balance and some parity. Let's measure both of these behaviors uh, as well as we can, and that's difficult with lifestyle behaviors, but let's measure them well and take them into account um, in analysis. Now, in the case of physical activity, uh, I have uh, over the years been using cardiorespiratory fitness or muscular strength as markers for physical activity. And we do have evidence that the primary determinant of a person's fitness is their exercise habit over their habits over the recent uh, weeks or months. So I like to use fitness because it's a better measure of activity than if I ask people about their activity habits. Now we also have in the physical activity area uh, here in recent years, we have objective measures of physical activity uh, from the simple level of a pedometer or step counter uh, to accelerometry. Uh, which gives us uh, a really pretty good indicator of total activity and indeed decent estimates of total energy expenditure. Uh, I don't think we have, it's even possible at this point, well I shouldn't say that, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get dietary measures that are as good as we can get for physical activity with objective monitoring. Now you can get very good dietary measures and let's say in an institution like the military uh, where you put up a, a, a video camera over the chow line and you take a picture of the food on the plate of someone coming through the line and then you also take a picture of the plate to see if there's any waste and you get a nutritionist to code that. I think you can get pretty close then to uh, uh, intake. Now of course you don't know what kind of food the person might have had sequestered back in their room and, and so on and so forth. So it is difficult to measure these things and I, I feel fortunate that in the physical activity arena, we can measure it, uh, measure total activity with accelerometry and do a pretty good job. So that's what I want to see, better measurements of both sides of the energy balance uh, equation. Now, to turn to what we find when we have good measures of both activity slash fitness and obesity, fat distribution and the like, we're getting away from, from diet here, but focusing on the public health problem of obesity, 
uh, and activity, and again, we look at activity or fitness, and measured obesity. Not only body mass index, but in many of our studies, percent body fat, by hydrostatic weighing, waist circumference, so we can look at adiposity and fat distribution. And the bottom line is, when we do that, for almost all health outcomes, we see no increase in risk or no increase in mortality rates, let us say, in the fat people who are fit, and in fact, they have much lower death rates than the normal weight people who are not fit. We see this again and again and again. We've reported it in men and in women. We've reported it in men with hypertension, in men with uh, diabetes. We reported this for incident hypertension, many different health outcomes. The one health outcome where fatness, in our data, fatness continues to show increased risk is for incident diabetes. Fitness does not eliminate the risk of developing diabetes in people who are uh, fat. It's a great summary of a lot of evidence. So um, I know you've got your slides with you. I just wonder if you wanted to take us through one data point. So if someone's listening to you and they're going, okay, um, that sounds impressive. And um, why don't you take us through one or two data slides um, about that? Right, uh, one of our older studies published uh, no, about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, uh, in which we looked at a group of about uh, 22,000 men followed on average for, I think it was about eight years after the examination, where their fitness was assessed by a maximal treadmill test and their body composition was assessed by hydrostatic weighing, uh, sum of seven skin folds, and waist circumference. And we looked at uh, all-cause mortality and uh, cardiovascular disease mortality. So just for example, when we look at the, let's say, normal fat uh, men, those 17% or less body fat, those with uh, and a moderate fat, that is 17 to 25% fat, and then the obese uh, men who are 25% or more fat. In each of those fatness categories, it was the unfit ones who died, and the fit ones uh, received protection, apparently. Uh, the obese men who were fit had a death rate that was no different from the normal weight, uh, normal fat men who were fit, and the obese men were, who were fit had a death rate about one-half that of the normal fat men who were not fit. So uh, the, the normal fat guys were twice as likely to die. The normal fat guys who were unfit were twice as likely to got, die as the fat men who were fit. Very similar pattern of results for cardiovascular disease mortality. In that paper, since we also had waist circumference, uh, when we looked at the men uh, uh, with, us uh, a normal uh, waist, I think that cut point was something like 80, less than 87 uh, centimeters, uh, who were uh, unfit, those men had a death rate five times higher than the men with a waist circumference of 99 centimeters or more who were fit. Uh, also, in that same report, we were able to look at fat mass, uh, at fat-free mass, and this same pattern of results came up again and again and again. It was the unfit ones who died, and the, the fat ones who were fit uh, had no, no increase in mortality. We, we also have uh, 
uh, also later uh, looked at these issues in women, and we see very, very much the same pattern. Uh, the obese women who are fit have a much lower death rate than the normal weight women who are not fit. And Steve, if a reader wants to find that, what's the best way for them to find that paper and the relevant papers? Uh, the, the first paper I've mentioned was in the uh, uh, American Journal of Nutrition in 1999. Uh, the first author was C.D. Lee. The uh, paper on women was uh, published, the first author was uh, Steve Farrell, that was published in Obesity Research in 2002, Farrell, F-A-R-R-E-L-L. -L. And one of our more recent uh, papers on this issue, uh, May Sue was the first author, S-U-I, uh, published in JAMA in 2007. And the difference in, in this paper was that we looked at these issues of, of fitness and fatness, uh, but in this case, in men and women 60 years of age and older. And again, the same findings that I've been um, mentioning uh, were observed in, in that uh, analysis. Keep in mind, 60 years of age and older, uh, the ones who were fit, uh, were uh, there was no difference in death rates for those who were fat and those who were not fat. Uh, then when we look at the unfit ones, their death rate was two or three times higher than the fit individuals. And again, no difference between those who were fat and those who were not fat. So again, again and again, different populations, we see the same findings. Thanks, Steve. That is a very compelling large amount of data that you have there, and it's great to get it here. So in the BJCM in 2009, you edited the special issues in January and February. And there's one particular uh, slide that I know you're very keen on and I'm delighted to have in BJSM. So why don't you take us through that uh, data from uh, BJSM 2009, pages one and two. Right, uh, we calculated something that epidemiologists like to do, uh, a thing called attributable fractions, or some people call it the population attributable risk. And what this uh, calculation does is provide an estimate of, in this case, the number of deaths observed in the population and attributes the percentage of those deaths to different exposures or, or different uh, risk factors. Now in this calculation, if you stop to think about it a moment, there are two main uh, factors that determine how many deaths are due to a particular characteristic, and that is how strongly is the characteristic associated with mortality, with the outcome, and then how many people have that characteristic. So I've already been talking about the relative risk and the difference in death rates between the fit and unfit uh, uh, individuals, and that's quite strong, that the unfit individuals are much more likely to die. So then we have to think, well, how many people uh, are exposed to this risk factor? And the definitions of fitness that we've been using uh, in our work is that uh, uh, the unfit are the least fit 20% in the population. So it's about 20% who are unfit in, in these analyses. So when you carry out these uh, attributable fraction calculations, you look at the strength of the association, uh, the number of people who have the characteristic, and then you adjust for potential confounders, for example, age. And when we do these for several different risk factors, we adjust for all the risk factors we're examining. So in this uh, figure in uh, the B 
PJSM. Uh, we show data for over 40,000 men and uh, nearly 13,000 women uh, followed for many years for mortality. And when we do the attributable fraction calculations, we find that 16 to 17 percent of the deaths uh, we would ascribe to low fitness, 16 to 17 percent. The percent of deaths we attribute to obesity in these calculations is two or three percent. Now keep in mind, each of these attributable fractions is adjusted for all the other risk factors in the analysis, which included low fitness, as I've mentioned, obesity, smoking status, hypertension, high cholesterol, and physician-diagnosed type 2 diabetes. So low fitness is the highest in attributable fractions. As I've already said, 16 to 17%. The only attributable fraction from the other risk factors that even comes close is hypertension in men, where the attributable fraction is about 15%. But diabetes, for example, the attributable fraction is about 4% in men and a little over 2% in women. So uh, again, low fitness is the strongest uh, contributor to deaths in this population. And the way epidemiologists interpret this, if no people were unfit, there would have been 16 or 17% fewer deaths in the men and women, respectively. It's incredible. Well, it's, uh, it's a lot. It's a, a powerful determinant of uh, who is likely to die. Uh, let me just go on to, to say, I said a moment ago, uh, we've defined low fitness as the bottom 20% of the distribution from the maximal treadmill exercise test. And over the years, people have said to me, well, how do you know 20% is the right cut point? Uh, maybe it should be 25% or it should be 15% or some other number. And my response to that is, well, I don't know that that is the best cut point. We do know in our data and in other data, there is a very steep inverse curvilinear gradient when we look at fitness as a continuous variable. And it's very steep at the low end. So uh, should we define low fitness as the bottom 20% or should it be some other number? I am perfectly willing to have a consensus conference by experts who have studied this topic and then we agree on what the cut point should be. And this is exactly what we have done for other risk factors. I'm old enough to remember when we had no real consensus definition for hypertension. And we have had for the last uh, 30 years. But we got that because experts came together, looked at the data, and said the cut point should be 140 over 90 or, or what I forget what they were the, the, the first time. I wish we would do that for fitness. I'm very willing to change the definition as I've used it. But I'm not willing to do it just on a whim because, well, it ought to be higher, it ought, ought to be lower. So uh, I would put in a plug uh, if someone listens to this podcast, who actually has the influence to, and the funds to bring together some experts and do this consensus conference, as we've done for, as I've said, hypertension, for high cholesterol, uh, diabetes, many other exposures. We need to do this for fitness, and I hope someday we will. But the cut point as we have defined it, the bottom 20 percent, uh, one should be th then thinking about, well, that's well and good, but uh, how much activity do I have to do to get out of that low fit category? Um, as it turns out, 
the consensus uh, recommendations or the, the, the official U.S. physical activity guidelines that were released by our Department of Health and Human Services in 2008 recommend as a fundamental recommendation 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity such as walking per week. If you do that, you will escape our low fitness category. Or as our guidelines go on to say, you could also do 75 minutes of vigorous activity. So take your choice. Would you rather walk 150 minutes or jog or something else uh, vigorous for 75 minutes? Or, as we now say in our guidelines, mix and match. So a couple of days of walking 30 minutes and, and then a day or two of uh, jogging uh, uh, 20 minutes or so, and you'd get the total uh, dose of activity. Uh, and if you do that, you will escape our low fitness category. And, of course, the U.S. guidelines, the U.S. recommendations are very consistent in terms of volume of, of, of exercise uh, with many, many other countries' recommendations. Uh, here in Canada, where we are today, uh, there are very recent uh, physical activity recommendations released uh, just in the last couple of months. They're, in, they're not stated exactly the same as the U.S. guidelines, but it's very close. Uh, in, in England, there's the five times a week that was released by the chief medical officer a few years ago. And again, it's very close to this. It's not stated as 150 minutes a week, but it's very compatible. So I think around the world, even including WHO recommendations, they're all in this ballpark, shall, shall we say. So do that. You will escape our low fitness category, and you will dramatically reduce your risk of dying of uh, uh, any cause, dying of cardiovascular disease. Even if you have hypertension, even if you have diabetes, you're going to be much better off if you're getting that dose of physical activity. Fantastic, Steve. It's, it's a powerful argument, and it convinced me when I heard you share some of this at uh, in Denver at your Wolf Lecture at ACSM, um, if uh, I'm not mistaken, it was in Denver, and uh, I was in the audience and I was seeing the relative risk curves up there and I was seeing them dramatically drop with um, dose of physical activity and uh, it actually changed my behaviour, to be honest, and I got a bit more active. Um, so thanks for that summary, it's fantastic. I, I do want to finish with a couple of more quick things. I mean, you've stimulated so many ideas, and, uh, but I want to take the advantage and privilege while we've got you here of asking... Uh, on that point you made about the consensus meeting and the fitness. Now, what what measure, because in your own, in the Dallas studies, you actually had VO2 max, didn't you? But I think we're looking at shuttle runs and other things. So let's say we move that consensus stock forward. That would be one of the things to be discussed. But what fitness measure would you, what have been the things on your mind for a fitness measure in you know, a public health setting? Well, I think it could be a variety of, of different things. Our data, it's not measured VO2 max, it's time on treadmill to exhaustion. But when Mike Pollock first went to the Cooper Institute in the early 1970s, one of the first things he did was compare different protocols and look at time on these different protocols, the Elastat, the Balky, which is the one we've used, the Bruce, and measured VO2 max, and he got the same answer with all the protocols and very high correlations with VO2 max. So I am convinced that time on treadmill to exhaustion, time on a cycle ergometer to exhaustion uh, is very close to measured uh, VO2 max. Now, can we do a maximal exercise test on every person in the world? No. 
And I don't even think that would be a wise expenditure of public health uh, funds or, or, or funds in, in clinical medicine. So we, we can do other things. Uh, we can use objective physical activity monitors to see if people are getting this desired dose of, of activity. There also are simpler fitness tests that can be used. I mean, there's the uh, submaximal cycle ergometer test that the great physiologist uh, P.O. Ostrand uh, pioneered decades ago. Uh, in the U.S., we have uh, the YMCA uh, submaximal test. I think it may be patterned after uh, Ostrand's test. The Canadians have a home fitness step test. And all of these uh, submaximal fitness tests get you close to. I mean, it's better than, than a self-report of physical activity. And I think there may be advantage, I don't really have data on this, but there may be an advantage into getting an objective fitness measure to use in your counseling with a patient or a participant uh, so they can see a change. Uh, another example, uh, there's the Rockport One Mile Walking Test which has been shown to correlate uh, quite well with uh, measured VO2 max. There's the UKK Institute two-kilometer walking test, which also correlates well with measured VO2 max. So I, I'm sure in most countries, there, mo there are investigators who have looked at this issue. There are a variety of submaximal uh, tests that we can use. Uh, uh, one that we use here in the U.S. at least uh, in the geriatric population is the 400-meter corridor walk. You just put two pylons 20 meters apart in the corridor, and you have some walk around those until they walk 400 meters, and you time how long it takes them. And so the metric would be meters per second. And research, at least here in the United States, have shown that walking speed in that test uh, is associated with uh, death rates during follow-up and associated with development of dementia during follow-up. So things like that, clinical tests, uh, you know, any hospital, you could train someone to administer this 400-meter walking test and have people you know, in a corridor. Uh, it's not that difficult. I'm not talking about sending someone to cardiology uh, and for a full diagnostic exercise test, which is very expensive and time-consuming. Now, that's needed for some people for diagnosis and uh, the, on the clinician's judgment. But that's, that's not necessary for public health purposes. And of course, for the average individual, uh, I would say uh, <clears throat> you could just go out, walk around the block, and uh, time yourself how long it took and just say, well, how tired am I at the end of this, the rating of perceived exertion? Say on a scale of one to 10, was this very hard or very easy? And then start walking 150 minutes a week. And you do that for several weeks, and then go out and do that again. Hopefully you've recorded your time and your RPE from the first walk, and you will find, oh, I did it faster, and I didn't feel, and or I didn't feel as tired. So I think there are lots of ways to get at the fitness concept. Yeah, that sounds very practical and uh, customized for, for country. Um, I'm going to ask about the accelerometry and the fitness, because uh, you mentioned that say using accelerometer, let's stay there rather than pedometer, would give you a measure of that. And uh, I probably should know these correlations and data on that, but uh, I have to confess that I don't. So how good is an accelerometer measure, so presumably count per day compared to fitness? I don't think there's been a lot of research on uh, coral, at least not, none comes to mind at the moment, 
where people have correlated uh, counts per day with measured uh, fitness. I mean, I'm having trouble recalling specific uh, examples. Uh, I think there is uh, an, an association, and uh, I, I think that uh, total counts per day is really a good measure of total energy expenditure, and there are papers in the literature on that uh, comparing uh, estimates from various kinds of accelerometers uh, with uh, the gold standard of doubly labeled water for total energy expenditure. And so those correlations get up in the 0.7 to even 0.9 range. So the accelerometer is a pretty good measure of total uh, activity. And therefore, given that, I'm sure that if we, and maybe there are studies out there that I'm not recalling at the moment, but if we had a a large study with accelerometry data and then uh, did a fitness test, uh, I'm pretty confident we'd see a good uh, correlation. And I couldn't help thinking, with the the fitness test, there is a genetic component to that. Um, So just share that with me, because these death rates are so striking. Um, Someone's going to think of that and go, well, what about the genetics of having a great uh, time to exhaustion? Gosh, Kiram, no one's ever asked that question before, or no reviewer on a grant application (laughs) or a paper. Sure, this comes up, well, fitness is genetic. It has a genetic component. So I now challenge you to name me anything that we can measure in human beings that does not have a genetic component. Well, everything does, of course. Blood pressure, lipid profile, body mass index, they all have genetic components. And that does not invalidate any of them as important risk factors for uh, health outcomes. So the same applies to uh, fitness. Now, um, again, this is not an area where, where I, uh, I do, do research, uh, but uh, the man who invented uh, the field of the genetics of physical activity and uh, adaptations to physical activity uh, is Professor Claude Bouchard, and I recall him telling me that, uh, uh, in fact, in some of his papers, uh, he has published the genetic contribution of uh, to, to cardiorespiratory fitness and to other uh, health uh, exposures. And as I'm recalling for fitness, he said it's somewhere in the 20 to 40 percent range, which actually is a little less than the genetic contribution to lipid profile, the body mass index. So they, they all have genetic contribution, and that doesn't eliminate any of them as important public health issues. Uh, some people will have more trouble. Uh, attaining um, a a good fitness level. Although in the case of fitness and activity, I think it's still a somewhat open question, uh, although Claude has clearly shown and others have shown that some people will get greater adaptation in fitness for a specific dose of exercise. That still doesn't answer the question, does the same dose of exercise have other health benefits in terms of mortality risk or morbidity risk. Uh, I think we don't know that for certain. Uh, There is work uh, underway on this. In fact, I think in that splendid journal, the British Journal of Sports Medicine, there is a paper. Is it published from my group, D.C. Lee, uh, on physical activity and fitness? Uh, I know we have one accepted. I don't think we have the definitive answer in that paper, and we do need to get this. that Even though your fitness doesn't improve a whole lot, you may still get most of the health benefits in terms of reducing the risk of uh, chronic uh, disease or, or mortality. Clearly, this is an area that needs more research. What do you expect an academic to say? <laughs> Send me more research grants and we'll do more research. 
Uh, and for the listeners, that was the editor looking sheepish uh, while we were talking about a bit of uh, page delay in the BJSM at the moment, but uh, we're fixing that, so uh, it's, it's on its way out. So uh, this is fascinating, and uh, I'm, I've got one pet subject that I just want to do before we uh, touch on before we finish, Steve, and uh, I think our listeners are going to really appreciate having this online. Um, I'm, I'm just going to just go a bit more into dose because uh, we've talked about the dose um, to improve health and to get you out of the bottom 20% and to make very substantial um, gains in risk. So that, I'm absolutely fine about that. But I've got a bit of a hobby horse, as you know, that um, I think for keen people, we don't emphasise that there are further benefits for doing more than that. And you know, and I'm okay about marketing one message at a time. But for someone who says, look, I've got plenty of time and I'm happy to do more if I can get more health benefit, can you just talk about the next gains in, in benefit on the dose side and where that levels off? Right. Uh, again, we've defined low fit or unfit as the bottom 20%. The next 40% we call moderate fitness. And again, that's what you get with 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity or 75 minutes a week of vigorous. But if you're like the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, you're on out in that top 40% or the top 20%, do you get additional health benefits? In our data, there's another 10 to 15% lower risk of mortality as you move from moderate fitness to high fitness. So yes, there are uh, additional benefits. And one other thing that we haven't really mentioned much here this morning, uh, I focused almost entirely on cardiorespiratory fitness. There are other kinds of fitness, notably muscular fitness or muscular strength. And this is again a pretty new area of research, but uh, the evidence is showing that there are additional benefits to resistance training, muscular fitness, over and above cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, we published a paper a couple of years ago in the uh, British Journal of Medicine uh, in which we looked at uh, mortality rates by measured muscular strength levels, and we saw the same kind of steep uh, inverse gradient across categories of muscular strength. And this held up after we adjusted for cardiorespiratory fitness. So clearly this is an area, and there have been a few other papers uh, also, clearly this is an area that needs more research to more fully define it, but I like to envision uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, i.e. aerobic activity, and muscular fitness, i.e. resistance training uh, activity, as two circles that overlap a bit, but not entirely. Both are important to certainly mortality, uh, to morbidity, and clearly to function, to preservation of function uh, in, in uh, older individuals. In fact, that was the first topic we investigated 10 or 15 years ago and found that both cardiorespiratory fitness and measured muscular strength uh, made uh, contributions to preserving function as, as people age. So um, I think we certainly want to always mention uh, resistance training as a habit that people need to incorporate. And our current U.S. guidelines say two days a week of resistance training, exercising all major muscle groups. Uh, we also say in the U.S. guidelines, and I have skipped over that thus far this morning, uh, the 150 minutes of moderate is the first target, but if you get 300 minutes of moderate, you get even more benefit. And that's what will put you in our high fitness category. So 300 minutes of moderate or 150 minutes of vigorous 
or again, mix and match moderate and vigorous and get to that higher dose. And I believe you drop your risk of various outcomes another 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent. There, there is further benefit. Uh, it, the data that we have, it does begin to show a plateau. And uh, it's not that, well, if I just exercise enough, I will never die. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, we're all going to die. It would be better to die being very fit and functional, however. Absolutely. Great to talk to you about that. Very thought-provoking and, uh, and really summative so that uh, people can run a journal club and discuss some of these papers and look at them themselves and then have your input uh, from, the B, from the BJSM. Um, I'm going to leave it there on uh, BJSM's uh, podcast. I'm going to say thank you so much for doing the podcast, taking the time, and um, all the best as you spread these messages around the world. It's been my pleasure to be here and my pleasure to work with BJSM over the years on these things. Thanks, Steve.